That's the song Super X9 from the band Daikaiju. It appears on their self-titled album, which you can find over at daikaiju.org, or just follow the link in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for this podcast, Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, producer, and writer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to episode number 96 of this podcast. Now, a couple of days ago on episode 95, I brought you audio, I brought you a recording that I took from the latest Monster Kid Radio crash. A Monster Kid Radio crash is when we Monster Kid Radio listeners get together and all watch a movie together at a local theater, or maybe even a drive-in or something along those lines. Here in the Portland, Oregon area, the Hollywood Theater brought in the original Godzilla, and damned if Godzilla doesn't have a place here on Monster Kid Radio. Well, last time around, you heard our thoughts about the movie before and after, including the thoughts of somebody who had never seen the movie before. Well, this time around, we're going back to that Monster Kid Radio crash because the movie was introduced by Kyle Yount from the Kaiju Cast. Now, the Kaiju Cast is the world's premier Godzilla-related podcast. It's a bi-monthly show dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. Kyle's a hell of a great guy, knows his stuff, and he shared the stage with author August Rigoni. Now, August Rigoni is a writer, and he just released a book, Kyle, and he are going to tell you a little bit about that in the presentation that they gave before the movie Godzilla. I talked to them after the show, and they gave me the okay to go ahead and run this on Monster Kid Radio, so I hope you enjoy it. And if you enjoy Kyle, check him out over at his podcast. Again, that's the Kaiju Cast over at kaijucast.com. You can follow the link in the show notes to that. If you want to learn more about August Rigoni and what he's up to, go to his website at The Good, The Bad, and Godzilla over at augustrigoni.blogspot.com. Dot com Again, link in the show notes. Also over at monsterkidradio.net, you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, including links to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, our Live 365 station. You can also find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5657. M- KR. I actually got an email that I want to share with you right now from a listener. He emailed us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. This comes from Jay. Hey, Derek, don't want to come off like a know-it-all jerk. I really enjoyed the MKR Godzilla episode, but there was some misinformation. Now, he's referring to what just happened in episode number 95. The second Godzilla film was shot in black and white and features in Garris. King Kong vs. Godzilla had the honor of being the first color in widescreen Godzilla film. And, sorry, but the Twin Mothra fairies are not in the new Godzilla trailer. They're firefighters. The fairies would not be viewable. They'd be lost in the rumble. No Mothra, no Rodan in this film. Dems the brakes. Thanks for the great show, and please take this as friendly facts. No problem. I definitely did, and you're right. I was so excited to chat with Chris and Ray after the movie that I kind of lost track of my facts a little bit. And when I went back to listen to the audio before putting it in the show, I realized my mistake, and I meant to go back and correct myself. I just never did. Jay, thank you for keeping me honest and keeping me on track. He's right. The second Godzilla film, Godzilla Raids Again, it is in black and white. King Kong vs. Godzilla was the first Godzilla color film. There were some color kaiju films before King Kong vs. Godzilla, but the first time we see him in all his green glory was in Godzilla Raids Again. And as far as the Mothra fairies in the new Godzilla trailer, I know... I know. It would be nice, though, to see just a few more bits and pieces here, a few more shout-outs, especially since the Millennium series of the Godzilla films, these are the movies that came out in the late 90s to the 2000s, 
did have some connections and some shout outs to previous Godzilla films. I guess the Heisei films did as well. And we're going to talk about that at the end of the show when I review the movies Godzilla vs. Destroya and Godzilla vs. Megagirius, Godzilla Tokyo SOS, and Godzilla Final Wars. Now, these are Blu-rays just came out courtesy of Sony. They put out four Blu-ray sets. Each set has two discs. In episode 95, I took a look at the first two discs in the set, Godzilla vs. King Ghidra and Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 and Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. So go back to episode 95 to hear my thoughts on those. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear my thoughts on these other two sets. I don't get into like an in-depth movie review because I feel like these movies have been around for a while. A lot of people have probably already seen them or really, I mean, come on, they're Godzilla movies. The stories, while they're there, the important stuff is watching Godzilla beat the heck out of another monster or something, right? Am I right? But I am going to talk about the Blu-ray experience at the end of this episode. That's all after we hear from Kyle in August going back in time to last weekend at the Hollywood Theater talking about one of their favorite movies. I don't know if they've told me in the form that I have set up if Godzilla is their favorite movie monster. I'm assuming it probably is, and I'd like to hear what you guys and gals think because we're coming up on episode 100 of Monster Kid Radio. To celebrate 100 episodes of the podcast and to celebrate all the support that you guys and gals have given me over the past near year, we're creating our list of our top 100 classic movie monsters. We're saying the classic period ended in 1970, just so that we had a nice solid cutoff point. Head over to tinyurl.com slash monsterkid100. That's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash M-O-N-S-T-E-R-K-I-D-1-0. Zero, zero. You'll be taken to a form where I'm asking you to tell me your top 10 favorite classic movie monsters. There's instructions on that page, letting people know what to do if they like Dracula, you know, which studio, which version of Dracula, that sort of thing. There's also a place for you to put your name and email address. I need the name and email address for two reasons. One, I want to confirm any information I have questions about, like which Dracula you're referring to, that sort of thing. But two, we're also going to have a prize drawing on episode 100. I've got two movies in the prize pack already. I'm hoping to maybe pick up something else to throw in there as well. You're going to get a copy of White Zombie on Blu-ray, unopened, never watched from Kino. We also have an unopened, brand new copy of the latest Christopher R. Mim film, The Late Night Double Feature. I'm kind of in love with the trailer for that movie, so I'm going to play that again here in a moment. You get to hear the trailer on episode 95, and I've played it off and on over the past several weeks. So we have those two movies in the prize package. I'm going to take all the forms that have been filled out for this top 100 list, write those names down on a slip of paper, put it in what I'm calling the Magic Lovecraft hat, and I'll draw a winner on episode 100. The deadline for the form is May 14th. It's easy to remember if you're George Lucas because May 14th happens to be George Lucas's birthday. Otherwise, if you fill out the form after the 14th, I'm not going to have time to include you in the mix and prepare properly for episode 100. That's coming up here in a couple of weeks. Why don't we go ahead and kick this off over to Kyle in August, talking about Godzilla. We'll get to that right after this. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. 
Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer, that's vodka and orange juice. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that's a screwdriver. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in The Late Night Double Feature. Good afternoon, everyone. You guys ready for some Godzilla action today? My name is Kyle Yount. I run a podcast called The Kaiju Cast. 100% dedicated to giant monsters. Godzilla and all his rubber-suited foes. And I am here to introduce a very good friend of mine who's up all the way from San Francisco. He's the author of a book named Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters. It's the actual biography of the man who made Godzilla and was a special effects director, August Ragoni. Come on up. Hey, that's the book right there. Thanks a lot, folks. Uh, I've been writing and talking about these films since I was a kid uh, in San Francisco. Uh, there was a local horror host named Bob Wilkins uh, who did a couple of TV shows. We all used to write letters to him. And I used to write obsessive letters about Godzilla movies. And uh, eventually, when I was in junior high school, he invited me on the show to talk about Godzilla. And I guess I didn't make a complete jerk out of myself because he kept asking me to come back. So eventually, I was able to write this book uh, commissioned by Mr. Subaraya's family. Uh, it's the first book in the last 20 years that's authorized to have uh, lots and lots of really awesome photos from the Godzilla movies. Now we're here to present a little bit of information about the behind the scenes stuff going on for the original Godzilla film. And uh, August here is gonna basically sort of answer some questions that I have and that you guys I'm sure will have to sort of really just share some information about why this movie was made. You know, the original movie opened up in 1954, November 3rd in Tokyo. Huge hit, and uh, like, it had a really big inspiration behind it. You wanna talk a little bit about this guy here? Oh yeah, that's Tomoyuki Tanaka, who was this young producer. And uh, he was working on this Indonesian co-production that was going to be a reconciliation between Japan and Indonesia over World War II. 
Unfortunately, there were some problems with the Indonesian government not wanting to grant visas, and this huge, big-budget film collapsed in his lap. And on the plane ride home to Tokyo, he didn't know what he would tell his bosses, because he was coming back with a failure and thought, my career is over. So, while flying over the ocean, he looked out at the sea and started thinking about a couple of different things. One of them was this movie that opened up in the United States the year before, 1953. You guys familiar with The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms? Oh, yeah. Harryhausen? It was a big hit in 53, obviously, by this trade ad in an American uh, box office magazine. Uh, the biggest grossing Warner Brothers picture, ironically Warner Brothers doing the new Godzilla, yep. in three years. So it was a monster picture that was really big, so this didn't go unnoticed by the young producer. But he thought there had to be some kind of a topical spin. The topical spin was uh, a lot of people do tend to think that Godzilla is imbued a lot with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, at the close of World War II. But while that lingers in the background somewhat, in the foreground is this incident, the Lucky Dragon fishing trawler that wandered into the Bikini Atoll test site in 1953, or 50, early 54, spring of 54. And the ship came back, unloaded its haul of tuna, distributed all over Japan. Then they found out that all the fishermen on that boat had a strange sickness that was determined to be radioactive, yeah, radioactive poisoning. The fish were also contaminated, but already distributed nationwide. It caused a nationwide panic in Japan and if you can imagine, Japan... Without fish, right? Yeah. yeah. It was a pretty big deal. I mean, it's, it, they called it, the Japanese media labeled it the second atomic bombing of mankind. So this was at the forefront of the producer's mind when audiences went to go see Godzilla in November of 1954. This was utmost in their minds. And so Tanaka, the young producer, gets back to the studio and has to talk to the head honcho of production. Iwao Mori, the man in the gray flannel suit. And uh, he wanted to move Toho Studios as a modern Asian studio, developing uh, the pattern from American Hollywood studios in storyboarding and in the high production values. And he just looked at Tanaka and went, yeah, I think we can do this. And they put together a dream team for this, go ahead, uh, which included director Ishiro Honda, Special effects director Eiji Tsuburaya as well. And these are the guys basically that are behind all of the classic kaiju films from the 50s and 60s. And these guys just didn't come out of anywhere. Uh, Ishiro Honda was actually... Uh, how many people know Akira Kurosawa? Okay, director of Seven Samurai, etc., etc. Honda was his senior, but then Honda was drafted into the war in China. And so Kurosawa was left at home to kind of supersede him as a director. And then later on in their lives, they collaborated on all of Kurosawa's later films like Kagemusha and Madadayo and uh, all of those films where Kurosawa said he and Honda co-directed them. Honda wasn't his assistant director. They were essentially co-directors. Eiji uh, Tsuburaya started as a cinematographer in the silent era in Japan during the uh, 1920s. And by the time he was in his, his 30s, uh, he uh, was a celebrated cinematographer, and he saw King Kong for the first time, became obsessed with doing special effects or pursuing that, 
even with his status in Japan, was able to get a personal print of King Kong, and he was able to study it frame by frame in a movieola. So that was his background, and he started doing special effects in the late 30s, early 40s. The next part of making this film was writing the script. It went through four drafts. The original story was just sort of this ambling kind of sea creature coming out of the ocean and eating, you know, eating fishing ships. I heard it was like a, supposed to be an octopus at first. Is that true? Well, there was, a, there was a two concepts that they worked on early on. One was a giant octopus, and the other one was a giant whale. Ah. So how did they come about with the Gojira? Well, as they developed into the first, uh, the first, uh, uh, first draft of the story, it, it developed into this uh, sort of a behemoth, a uh, leviathan, a sea monster that was more reptilian, more dinosaurian, and that just followed through on all the various drafts of the screenplay, which were then layered by uh, director Honda, who wrote the script, with another, with another guy named Takeo Murata, and they decided to set Godzilla in the real world. Like, what if this ridiculous thing of a giant monster coming out of the ocean and stomping humanity. What if it was really set in the real world? So that was their, their thinking, their thought process when they created the film, which is the same thing as Gareth Edwards is doing with the brand new Godzilla that opens up uh, on the 16th. Next, yeah, the next couple of weeks, the 16th, yeah. And the cast for this film included uh, some very young actors. Akira Takarada here on the left-hand side. He plays Ogata in the film. Momoko Kochi plays Emiko Yamane. And uh, over there on the other side, that is Akihiko Hirata playing Dr. Serizawa. Um, now, these guys were younger actors, but they had a career already, right? Oh, yeah. These guys weren't like B-movie actors. These were the hot new prospects, you know, at the time. So they're the hot new leads at Toho, and they all had very, very long careers in motion pictures. And uh, Kira Takarada especially became a superstar and was Toho's top leading man during the 1960s. And Momoko Kochi reprised her role as Emiko Yamane in the 1995 film Godzilla vs. Destroya. And all, and all of them, with the exception of uh, Miss Kochi, all appeared in numerous Godzilla and other science fiction pictures as well. She only returned in 1995 for Destroyer. Right. And uh, Akihiko Harada, the guy who played Dr. Serizawa, he played many characters in many different films, including Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla, and also Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. And unfortunately, he died in 84. 84. Yeah, so he, he was wasn't supposed able... to be in Godzilla 1985, yeah, and he yeah. passed away before they could start shooting. Also, in the film, a very famous actor. Yeah, Takashishimura. He was Kurosawa, one of Kurosawa's favorite actors. He was the... Well, we don't really have to say much about him, except that he was the leader of the Seven Samurai. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, very popular actor in Japan. Now, the design of Godzilla went through several different iterations, uh, including this mushroom cloud-shaped head that, of course, did not make it into the final version. But can you explain a little bit about what this, uh, the book you have here? Well, the design, one of the designers, Wasuki Abe, he was an illustrator for his brother's uh, series of juvenile uh, science fiction novels, one of them being Kenya Boy. It's, a, it's basically a Tarzan story as told by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, but with a, a Japanese boy lost in Africa with a giant, with big dinosaurs running amok. And so they, dinosaurs. Right. Yeah. And so they really liked the design of his Tyrannosaurus, so they, they asked him to be one of the conce, uh, conceptual designers on the film. But they decided that, you know, they, the, you know, the mushroom cloud head thing didn't look cool, and they said, do it more like a dinosaur. And they also went through and scavenged 
a lot of popular American magazines and, and different artists from around the world that were working in paleontological circles like Rudolf Zallinger and then uh, Zednik Baran. And this iguanodon, you kind of like that painting. I love that painting. Dude, look at this. Does that not look like a man in a suit right there? That is awesome. If you just put the spines on the back, you pretty much have Godzilla. Yeah, that looks like a Godzilla man, you know. And then, so then they started sculpting in clay for three-dimensional models so they could uh, decide if that was the design they wanted to go with. You can see the texturing here. It's supposed to look like the keloid scars, the keloid scars from uh, radiation sickness right. patients. That was the concept on these particular, uh, these particular scales. They were supposed to look like the keloid scars. Uh, so that kind of underlines the fact that Godzilla was both a, uh, a result of the bomb and a victim of the bomb at the same time. Now, the first suits that they made for Godzilla were the first two, right? They were just completely almost useless. They were so stiff and so heavy that the suit actors could not actually move in them. So what they ended up doing is cutting them into pieces to use in other areas of the film. Next slide. And one of them being this. They did a half suit just so they could shoot the feet. And the other reason was not just, you know, it wasn't really an economical reason, it's it a practicality reason. They were shooting this film at the height of summer. And at that time, and Japanese summers are very, very hot. They're probably as hot as here, uh, and with the same amount of humidity, but you're shooting on a soundstage that isn't ventilated, uh, doesn't have air conditioning, and uh, also you've got a guy wearing a 200-pound monster suit, and they would tend to pass out very quickly. Uh, they could only be on film for about a minute without keeling over. And, and so they, yeah, so to achieve some shots where they didn't need to put, use the whole suit in the shot, they would cannibalize the, uh, the rejected suits to uh, use for these kind of close-ups. And after uh, they were acting in the suit, the guys who were playing Godzilla, they were pouring out about a cup of sweat, and they could only do like yeah, a few a minute, minutes or something. Minute, like a minute to two minutes because yeah. all they could last in the suit at that time. It was so hot in the studio that it would rain sweat. The perspiration from the entire staff. And so because it was so hot, they shot from 5 p.m. sometimes till 5 a.m. just to have cooler weather. So here you see the suit in uh, near completion. You can actually see Momoko Kochi stepping on Akira Takarada with one of those feet from the original suits. And that's, so that's a near final design. And, and here, here we go. In all his glory, scars and all. Now the final design of Godzilla obviously carried through throughout the films, changing slightly here and there. But there's one thing that really didn't change that much and that is the roar of Godzilla, which was created by the composer for this film, Akira Ifukube. And he did this by taking a, a glove soaked in resin. Yeah, it was a, a resin, resin coated, coated glove, glove. And then rubbing his hand on the contrabass strings, and then they recorded that and then sort of messed around with it, right? Yeah, he had to actually sneak the contrabass out of the uh, Tokyo Conservatory of Music. <laughs> he was a professor. He said, I'm just gonna borrow this for a while. <laughs> Went in and did, uh, you know, they recorded it, uh, various uh, uh, speed pulls on it and then manipulated the sound to get the voice of Godzilla. He actually even wrote music. He wrote it as the voice as a score as well. So he goes, you hit this note, it's Godzilla's voice. 
And actually, Ifukube is what some people consider to be like the, the last member of that dream team, Tanaka, Honda, Subaraya, and Akira Ifukube. And his music is so, so synonymous with Godzilla, it's like 007 without the 007. Completely, thing. totally. Uh, yeah, so here you got Eiji Subaraya, and he is directing not just the special effects, but also the suit actor. Right. So a lot of times a visual effects director is just setting up shots and, you know, they're doing filming miniatures and how the miniatures are going to blow up or whatnot. But he also was a director himself. He had a lot of career, a long career before making special effects films. So uh, he would actually direct the monster actors. So check out these miniatures here of the towers. You're obviously going to see this in the film. Every miniature that they made was painstakingly detailed at, uh, what was the scale on those? 125. Yeah, so these things look so realistic. In August's book, if you guys ever have a chance to check it out, he has a lot of pictures in there. We saw some from Mothra, where he just, they have this massive set, which is a city cityscape. Uh, but in Godzilla here, you'll see these towers, you'll see amazing reconstructions of buildings. Yeah, you can see just the detail in the background of these shots, yeah. you know, and uh, the, the miniatures were so detailed and Subaraya extracted, uh, exact, you know, had such exact uh, 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 demands on his, on his staff that if they built the miniatures wrong, because they were actual replicas of various neighborhoods of Tokyo, if they were wrong, he'd go strike it, rebuild it. So can you tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in this picture here? Yeah, this is for a glass, what they call a glass shot which is basically a glass, what they also call a glass matte painting. So there's these elements that are painted on this pane of glass, and it's used to uh, create a forced perspective. Uh, this is on an easel, and it's being straight up right now. They would put it at a 45 degree angle, have the camera also at a 45 degree angle coming up, and then the Godzilla would lean over, so it would look like in the finished film, which we'll see, uh, that you're on the ground from a POV point of, uh, point of view, uh, from being street level looking at Godzilla and looking through all the street lines, all the, the power lines on the streets. Now this is a diet building. This is akin to the flying saucers crashing into the Capitol building in Earth versus the flying saucers. And you can see in the foreground a potted plant used as a tree. Now these guys, like I said, did painstakingly detailed work on these miniatures. And so the camera, you'll see down here, is going to be pointing up at the Dyad building. Godzilla's over there on the left-hand side. Yeah. And Subaraya, uh, with the soft hat and his hand up, giving instructions to one of the Godzilla actors. Uh, these miniatures were not made out of cardboard. Everybody goes, oh, the cardboard buildings. Yeah. Those movies are so charming. They're adorable with the cardboard buildings. These things were made out of plaster. They were made out of plywood. Some of them had actual steel supports to hold the weight of some of the actors if they had to actually climb up on top of a building in like in the 1956 film Rodin, mm -hmm. you know? So these weren't just like paper or, you know, paper mache or cardboard models at all. Now you see the, the actual shot they were getting pretty much in the next slide here. You see Godzilla attacking the Diet building. And, you know, there it goes, there it goes the parliament building. Nice political statement. And here's that, hi mom, it's me, Hiroshi, shot, casual shot taken behind the scenes. Uh, uh, during the one of the climactic shots in the, uh, the attack on Tokyo, in the background there was a lot of fire effects in this film. And fire effects weren't really, uh, they didn't have the, the technology for fire effects. It was just sort of like, we need a lot of fire. In America they have all these, you know, uh, 
safety regulations. Uh, they had to film this outside. They couldn't do it inside of a soundstage because of the amount of fire effects that they used. So all the fire you'll see in the background raging in the film, that was all accomplished with rags soaked in kerosene. <laughs> Super safe. Super safe, yeah. But, uh, you know, that's what they had to do. Oh, damn. Oh, sorry, how did that get in there? How did that get in there? Now but, that, uh, but Godzilla will be back in Godzilla Raids again. You'll have to find out what happens in Godzilla in this picture. So uh, this movie was a huge hit, and not only did it... Uh, th was it a huge hit in Japan, <laughs> it was so big that they actually brought it to America. As you can see, Raymond Burr there playing wait, his... Wait, wait, Ironside? Ironside. Perry Mason playing the character of Steve Martin in the film Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yeah, he's not really a wild, crazy guy in this film. <laughs> now, this was a big hit in America, and it was also uh, the film that obviously propelled the entire series. Right. The American distributors who brought this over here uh, also distributed it worldwide. And it just became this phenomenon that Jap put the Japanese on the map, making uh, you know marketable global films, and they just started churning out the monsters, man. And everybody ate them up all over the world, from Mothra to Rodan and Mysterians, Gorath, and many, many, many more. And that's why, 60 years later, we're still talking about this film, still talking about Godzilla. We all still love him, right? <laughs> so, in conclusion, uh, August here not only has written the book you saw out in the lobby, but he also contributes to Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Anybody know that uh, from back in the day? They, they, they had a resurgence, what, about four years ago? Yeah, about four or five years ago, yeah. And so August works on the kaiju issues. That comes out every year during the summer, and we have uh, a new issue gearing up this year, and it's going to have four covers by Hugo Award-winning artist Bob Angleton, who painted all of these covers. It's going to be one issue with four variant covers covering the called Godzilla Generations, covering 60 years of history. Very nice. Uh, and then, and, yeah. This thing, too. Yeah, so we've only got, like, just to let you know, we'll be selling this out in the lobby uh, after the show. There's only a few more copies yeah, I think left. we only have, like, three or four copies left. But, uh, everybody, please thank August Ragoni for coming what? up all the way from San Francisco. But, if you can't get a book today... Oh, right, yeah, they come uh, out on Tuesday. Come out on Tuesday, check out Pals. They're not paying me to say this. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you very much. I want to thank Kyle for having Thanks. me come up. And the Hollywood Theater. Awesome. Let's watch some giant monster action. Shall and we? this is a beautiful print. You're going to love Oh, it. yeah. It's beautiful. Big thanks to Kyle and August for letting me use that recording here on Monster Kid Radio. Again, check out Kyle over at the Kaiju Cast. August Rigoni was actually on a recent episode of the Kaiju Cast, so you can hear more from him about his experience chronicling the work of Subaraya. And I've added his book to my personal Amazon wish list. I got a chance to flip through it at the Hollywood. They had a few copies for sale. It looks gorgeous. Now, if you're interested in picking up that book for yourself, I have an Amazon store link over at monsterkidradio.net. I've put that book in that store. Now, I haven't done much with that link in several months. It might look a little sparse, but all that means is that it's easy to navigate for you. I've got that book in there, and I've also included these double-feature Blu-rays that Sony just recently put out. And speaking of which, why don't we talk about those a little bit right now? Now, I said at the beginning of this I wasn't going to talk about the movies themselves. However, I feel like I need to address a couple of things. These Blu-rays represent two different eras of Godzilla. Now, longtime Godzilla fans know that there's the Showa era, the Heisei era, and the Millennium era. And these sets kind of bounce all over the place, sort of. 
Godzilla vs. Destroya is the last in the Heisei era, and it does follow the continuity as set up by the previous four films in this collection. And I really liked it. I mean, I know Godzilla's the big bad, crushing things, killing things, things like that, but there was an emotional connection that I have developed over the past four movies watching these Blu-rays for this podcast that I really enjoyed getting to the end of this thing and seeing what happened to Godzilla and specifically seeing what happened to that little baby Godzilla or baby Godzilla that they found in the egg in one of the previous movies that I talked about on episode number 95. You get to see that character, (laughs) character, uh, Kaiju grow and evolve a little bit. And it really is kind of the end of an era. It definitively ends. And that's that. I mean, there's really not much more you can do after that. And historically, this was the movie that, Toho kind of ended things with before the American remake with Matthew Broderick and company. So I can see Toho wanting to end things before the Americans took over. And you can go back and look and see what the American plans were, that sort of thing. Obviously, they didn't get to make the trilogy of films that they were talking about because their film bombed. Toho eventually did come back with Godzilla 2000, which is not in this set. However, you do have Godzilla versus Megagirius. Now, Godzilla 2000 and Megagirius are both of the millennium series. However, they're not really related. So I could dive into Megagirius without feeling like I missed anything because Godzilla 2000 isn't part of this set. The other two movies on the final Blu-ray, Godzilla Tokyo SOS and Godzilla Final Wars, uh, again, they're of the millennium era, but they kind of pick and choose what parts of the Godzilla milieu they're going to pull from. Godzilla vs. Destroya, to go back to that one, actually references the very first Godzilla film, which was part of the Showa series, and even has the return of Momoko Kochi, who was in the very first Godzilla. She was the daughter of the professor, the one who was betrothed to the man who created the Oxygen Destroyer. Oh, wait, the Oxygen Destroyer also is referenced quite a bit in this movie. In fact, it appears in the opening credits as part of the titles, which was kind of cool to see. And we get to hear about some things that happened in the first Godzilla. We skip everything else, though. King Kong versus Godzilla, King Ghidra, Rodan, all that stuff. None of it really gets referenced in Destroya. But the first Godzilla happened in this timeline. Characters are related to characters from that first Godzilla as well. And it's a nice little connection. And again, it was a nice way to end that particular series. I found myself really enjoying the Heisei era of Godzilla, and I was glad to be there, and I hope to go back there again. I need to go back and watch Godzilla 1985. It's been so long since I've seen that one. The last time I saw that was when it was playing on an in-store monitor when I was working at a video store called Video Library in Bozeman, Montana, many, many moons ago. And the only thing I could really tell you about that particular VHS copy that we played in the store is that it had Bambi versus Godzilla at the very beginning of it. So I need to go back and watch that one again. Anyway, getting on to Godzilla versus Megagarius, it pretty much ignores Godzilla 2000 or doesn't reference it. But again, it does reference the first film, going back to Showa, and... It even has some scenes that look like they were recreations from the original Godzilla. They didn't actually just show the archival footage. They went back and reshot particular scenes to make it look like it fit. And this one also was a really good film. I really enjoyed this one. It had everything that you'd want. The Godzilla design is a little different now. I imagine the Godzilla 2000 design was more in line with the Megagirius than the Destroyer look. Slightly different. I think the Heisei era is my favorite. But that's okay. I mean, it's still Godzilla. It's kind of hard to mistake the big green guy, the big lizard. It is Godzilla through and through. Godzilla Tokyo SOS and Godzilla Final Wars. Again, these are part of the Millennium series. 
but they don't take place immediately after Megagirius. And again, the continuity is a little wonky. Godzilla Tokyo SOS, for example, is a follow-up to one of the Mecha Godzilla films, which is not part of this set. And then Godzilla Final Wars goes through and references almost every kaiju monster, or at least every kaiju monster has a cameo, almost, as Godzilla's going through and having his, well, final war, so if you'll forgive the play on the title. And again, this was the last Godzilla film from Toho for a while, and the next Godzilla we're going to see is the American version directed by Gareth Edwards. Now, this final set, the two Blu-rays, actually have one special feature, kind of like a making-of featurette. However, don't get your hopes up, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, it's just a bunch of cobbled-together behind-the-scenes footage. There's no narration. There's no real documentation it's just basically raw footage or footage that was shot on set while they were setting up the giant monsters for a battle it's cool to see it's very cool to watch but there's no real documentary feel to it so if you're into watching just raw footage for the sake of raw footage when it comes to these giant monsters and i know a lot of you probably are it's enjoyable but again you're not going to learn a heck of a lot because there's really nobody there to guide you through it again you've got original trailers on these blu-rays and it's been remastered for high def and again i watched these subtitled now this time around i started to have problems with the subtitles they were just too darn light and then i started thinking the previous films the heisei era films and this set they're all incredibly dark and when i think back to biolante and then godzilla 1985 they're also very dark and what i mean by that is that a lot of the monster action actually happens at night which does amp up the terror. I mean, it definitely works. There's a reason why Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park 2, the dinosaurs ran around at light a lot. So, I mean, I get it. It makes sense. However, it did make some of the action hard to see, but made the subtitles very easy to see. The subtitles in specifically Godzilla vs. Megagirus and Godzilla Tokyo SOS, there were times where they were a little difficult to read because there's just so much light on the screen, a lot of daylight and a lot of sunshine and blue skies or fire makes it hard to read the white subtitling. There is another option to watch the subtitle with a black bar behind it, but that starts to obscure some of the image. And I did find that that's not as clear as just the white floating text. That's my biggest complaint about some of the subtitling. At points, some of the subtitling did jump from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen. So I know that somebody was there paying attention a little bit to move the subtitling around. I wish it could have been done a little bit more with Tokyo SOS specifically, but that's really a minor nitpicking point. Perhaps the only other nitpicking point that I would make here is that it is a little frustrating that you don't get all the movies in order. However, I also understand who might have the rights to what would impact what Sony can put out on their Blu-rays. I co-produce a Hammer Films podcast with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell, and the Hammer Films are notorious for being difficult to assemble an official hammer collection without skipping around a little bit because different studios had different distribution rights and i'm sure that's probably what happened here you're going to get two movies and a blu-ray set two individual blu-ray discs so they're not even super compressed to make room for them both on one disc not that they filled the rest of it up with a bunch of special features but you got two discs and right now they're selling for 13 bucks a set you can get them on Amazon. You can find them at any other online retailer. You might even find them in a local store. Again, I've got an Amazon shop set up over at monsterkidradio.net where you can pick them up as well. We get like, what, two cents on that if you buy them that way? I think these are going to be worthy additions to your collection. When else are you going to get a Godzilla movie in Blu-ray? Except for maybe about a month ago when King Kong vs. Godzilla came out with King Kong Escapes. And then uh, this week also we had Godzilla vs. Gigan, Ibarra, 
Horror of the Deep, and Godzilla vs. Hedorah on Blu-ray as well. Those also came out from Section 23. I haven't had a chance to crack those open yet. And honestly, I haven't had a chance to really crack open my King Kong vs. Godzilla or King Kong Escape Blu-rays either. But I'm certainly glad that I cracked open these Sony Blu-rays. I saw some Godzilla movies that I hadn't seen in their entirety before. And I really, really enjoyed them. Big thanks to Sony for providing those to Monster Kid Radio to review. And again, I highly recommend them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, this was episode number 96, which means you've got four episodes until our big 100th episode. Again, we're looking for your top 10 classic movie monsters. Head over to tinyurl.com slash monsterkid100 to help us figure out the top 100 list that we're going to reveal on episode 100 here in a couple of weeks. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, well, I'm going to the World Horror Convention this weekend. It's here in Portland, Oregon. I'm pretty lucky it's happening in my hometown, and I hope to record something there. I've got one interview lined up. I've got a panel that I've been given permission to record and share with the Monster Kid Radio listeners. I'm excited about that. So we're going to have at least that happening on Monster Kid Radio next week, and who knows what else? I'll have my recorder with me. And hey, if you're going to be at the World Horror Convention... Track me down, look me up. Again, you know the drill. I'm the guy in the Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's having the most fun in the room. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC. is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Super X9. That belongs to the band Daikaiju. You can find it over at their website, daikaiju.org. It appears on this episode with their permission. Talk to everybody next week.